This is the Bagel Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, for another episode of the Bagel Podcast. Today, I am joined by 15-year NHL veteran, Hockey Night in Canada studio analyst and Calgary Flames color commentator, Kelly, Rudy. Kelly, how are you today? I'm doing very well, Julian. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, it's it's funny talking just before uh, we started recording. One of my closest family friends who moved out to Calgary, you know, many, many years ago, actually live just, you know, a few minutes away from where you are. What a small world. I know, isn't that the truth? And when you were telling me that, because I, I told you off camera that literally it would take me one minute to drive by the Dobigan's house. So it, it's such an incredible small world. And when you mentioned to me, Julian, that you had been out to Calgary once, it uh, made me really happy, brought a smile across my face to know that you went to the uh, Canadian Rockies and Lake Louise, because Lake Louise is just such a gem, just a beautiful, beautiful place. 100%. My mom, who you know organized the trip to go visit her, you know, lifelong friend, was like, yeah. we have to go see them, but we also have to make a trip out. Because who knows if we're ever going to see, you know, the Rockies again. And Lake yeah. Louise, incredibly, like, it's so beautiful, water pristine. My wife wants to go. So now I have another excuse Perfect. to try to make it out again sometime soon. And then, Julian, when you go... Uh, you know, winter might be a little tough because the it's called the Icefields Parkway north of Lake Louise going towards Jasper. And it's been rated one of the 10 most scenic roads in the entire world. It's that beautiful. But in winter, probably not a great idea. You know, it's gorgeous, <laughs> but the road might not be open and all that. So do yourself a favor. Go in uh, July or August or September. June is beautiful and likelihood to see maybe a grizzly is a little bit greater on that road, but it can be a rainy month as well, June. So go later. And like I said, it's just a stunningly beautiful drive. On the advice of you, I will make sure we plan yes. July or August. There we go. Now, Happy New Year. Obviously, you know, we're a couple days into the new year. This is going to air in the second week of January. Um it's still applicable to say Happy New Year, but I got to ask you, how long do you continue to say Happy New Year to people? <laughs> uh, I think I had like two text messages today that uh, I was still getting back. And I'm kind of <laughs> like you. I'm on the fence. Like, is it still appropriate right now? Have we moved past it? Um, and so most likely uh, starting tomorrow, I think I'll be over it. But uh, nonetheless, you know, if you continue to do it, you're spreading cheer and goodwill, right? So so that's a good thing. Right. It's always, they always say like the first time you see people in the new years when you say it, but if we're into February and March, like that's a little bit tough to be saying happy new year. We're, we're already in to the, to the year. Yeah, no kidding. But you know, the thing is we don't see as many people anymore either. So there's that. And so it will be unusual, um, you know, with the lockdown, hopefully our lockdown here in Alberta, I think is going to lessen January 11th, but that's, you know, you know, up in the air but uh, you know we still need to see people we're social beings right and so you know I miss I miss not hugging people and being around them and all that so I'm really looking forward to the day and hopefully in a few months uh, if we have this conversation again we can say wow that was a 
horrible stretch we went through and, uh, you know, it affected everybody, not only uh, physically and uh, COVID has affected my family. Some of my family members had it, but uh, emotionally, mentally and financially, it's been a, a real grind. Uh, I'm sure you would agree, Julian. 100%. I actually want to talk about that today with you because you've done many pieces for Sportsnet when it comes to talking about mental health. and. Yep. 2020 was a challenging year for a variety of different reasons. Either people got sick through COVID or were affected by family members or even the lockdown. It obviously weighs on everybody's mental and physical capacities very differently. But you've talked about the importance of mental health in the past, and you obviously have a personal connection with this. Why Mm -hmm. is it such an important topic to you? Okay, so I went through something uh, that I didn't realize was uh, related to mental health in 1992-93 when I was playing for the LA Kings. And uh, something funky was going on in my head uh, in that summer, the summer of uh, 1992, leading up to the training camp and uh, the season. And my brain was uh, just telling me bad things. Like, I can't keep up this level of play. You can't – your career is coming to an end. All these – nasty things but you know part of my brain was right in the sense that the average career is only about three three and a half years so I was entering my 10th year I think and uh you know I I knew some of those numbers and so I'm thinking you know there's a lot of stress and and pressure and I'm thinking man maybe this is year it all comes crashing down so I got off to a great start so did the team and uh and then around late uh November the thoughts just became overwhelming. And uh, I didn't know about the loop back then. Our daughter, Caitlin, who has uh, dealt with mental health issues for a lot of her life um, through all our journeys and uh, through therapy and so on, she taught me about the loop and how to try and break that loop. And you have to have the skills to do it. And uh, so I didn't have those skills. I just suffered basically for two months. And uh, finally, my coach, Barry Melrose, recognized I needed some help. And so uh, I was able to meet uh, Anthony Robbins. And uh, if you're not familiar with Anthony Robbins, he's an extremely powerful guy. And, uh, you know, frankly, I was able to meet with Tony one-on-one for a few times and and it saved my career because I ultimately, I came out of that uh, ditch that I was in, played another five. We went to the finals that year and I played another five years. So, uh, and then when we had to go through, uh, dealing with uh, what Caitlin was going through with her anxiety and OCD and learning about that and how to parent through that and also how to uh, help your kid and support your child. Uh, We've learned so much. And, you know, over the years, uh, you know, the Canadian Mental Health Association, Julian, I'll tell you, they do a wonderful job. Like I'm the biggest fan, but they will tell you that uh, one in five Canadians suffers. And I'm here to tell you I disagree with that number. And now maybe by suffering, they say they maybe mean to say that it's completely debilitating to somebody. And I would agree with that. But I think all of us, it's either four and five or five and five. All of us are dealing with something. And it's how we can control it or react to it or uh, talk talk about it to other people. And Julian, one of the things that I find most heartwarming about this conversation is that, say, 15 years ago, two guys like this, we wouldn't have been talking about, hey, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And and now we can say, it. you know, guys, now we say I love you all the time to people that we don't really know that well. Uh, I think it's just so heartwarming, um, you know, and going back to that point, like mental health really affected our family uh, during this pandemic. And uh, I think all of us were affected in some way. 
I remember the first weekend uh, that uh, the numbers really started to go up. I believe it was March 12th when the NHL canceled games. It was a Thursday. And uh, that weekend, because we didn't have the restrictions in place and you could still see your family and the government didn't know what to do exactly. And so that Sunday, we had all of our kids over and uh, their spouses, our grandson. So there are nine of us at the house. And that afternoon, um, I'm watching my wife, Julie, and I'm thinking, hmm, she's acting kind of strange. And she's really glued to the television, flipping between all the different news channels. And she seemed kind of off. And and my bad, I should have asked her, are you doing okay? And, uh, you know, I didn't. And uh, she woke up at 5.15 on Monday morning and thought she was having a heart attack. And so we ended up taking her to the hospital. But the the anxiety of all the pandemic and rising numbers and, and everything just got the best of her. And now, luckily, her heart checked out just perfectly. She's fine. But she ended up getting a case of uh, shingles because of the worry. So... That's my point here in this long, super long-winded answer, but just ask people how they're doing. And I think when you look in somebody's eyes, you can tell if they're hanging in there or if they need to talk. I mean, I, I completely agree because when you look at, like you said, back in the day when, when you're going through this in your playing career, guys didn't talk about their feelings. You're 100% no right. And nowadays, most athletes, at least the superstar athletes, are paying to have one, two, yeah. three sports therapists because they understand the mental game is just as, if not equally as important to the physical game. So they'll spend money on their ther yeah. their physical therapist to yeah. eat right. But if your mind isn't right, you cannot perform at such a high level that they need to. And so we're definitely able to have these conversations now. We're definitely able to you know, look at Bell Let's Talk Day and champion the idea of mental health awareness rather than look at it as a crutch or a weakness the way it yeah. was just you know maybe even 10 years ago absolutely i'm so happy you said that because caitlin came out with her story in uh, the spring of 2013 and uh and i was we we're all very proud of her and so you know how strong she was to share her story in fact i think it was on the cover of the national post so they the national post did an amazing job and also canadian press uh, did a wonderful job of covering uh her story and what she's lived with but you know i think one of the things that really scared me the most about that i remember the night before the story was coming out and i was working a game in st louis and caitlin was here in calgary with her mom and, uh, and I said, you know, do you, are you sure you want to go through this? And I, and I said, it's not about you sharing your story. I was so afraid of social media, Julian. I thought, yeah. you know, mean people can be and the haters and, 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 you know, much to my surprise, um, she has not had one hater. She's only felt support and love. So that's my point to anybody listening or watching this that, you know what, if you're a little bit afraid of that, don't be you'll be really pleasantly surprised by how much support and love you receive and and people will be very understanding because right. in all likelihood they're going through something 100 percent. now i want to shift gears obviously you know like this, it. Isn't, it, this is an important topic but one of the other things that i absolutely love when it comes to this time of year is the world junior championships <laughs> you know as a canadian I love this time and it's really a time, especially nowadays when we look forward to sporting events or movies to really yeah. take our minds off of the regular day-to-day -day grind. You know, it brings up 
great, you know, national pride when we look at our young kids and then representing us on a global scale. Yeah. But this year, the conversation has kind of changed a little bit where the conversation has come up where we talk about the same countries dominating year after year, the can the Canadians, the Americans, you know, every once in a while, the Finns and the Swedes and then the Russians. Yeah. And they're calling for, do, do we need a change? Is it time now where we look to sort of change the format where we don't have teams like Germany or Switzerland or Slovakia getting beaten up? And I've sort of, I've tried to look at it from an outside perspective and I've yeah. looked at it and said, listen, when we include countries like Germany and Slovakia and, 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 Swiss, and Switzerland, and we look at the, the uh, sorry, the grassroots that they are building in these countries. And we're starting to see guys like Leon Dreisaitl, top pro, top player. We look at Zdeno Chara and we look at Yannick Weber. And we look at these guys who are coming in because of the ability to play on these junior stages and in the Olympics and in the world cups and all of those things. I say, let's continue to champion and build. Let's not retract. Let's not change it because it's getting dry. What are yeah. your thoughts on that? What are, what do you think when it comes to people looking, Hey, let's stop the domination and let's make it more of an equal playing field. Well, for, first of all, I think it's a really important conversation to have because I think, People, uh, you're exactly right. They are divided. There's half that uh, love the tournament the way in which it's uh, organized, and there are half that say that you know I've heard other people saying there's too many teams and and nobody likes to see uh, Germany lose 16-2 in that first game. Having said that, that was a pretty darn good excuse. They had nine guys out of the lineup uh, exactly. with COVID, so I think that was uh, a little bit misleading because uh, I'm of the mindset that I like the tournament. And I really like allowing other or countries in the in the format because they're growing their programs. You mentioned three of those players from three different countries that have been a, a byproduct of that competition. And now when they come here or wherever the tournament's played, they get a better understanding of what level they need to be at. And, and I'm a big supporter of we have to be patient because this game is really growing globally. And that is really exciting to me. Like I watched the... Uh, uh, Germany a couple days ago and man alive was I ever impressed they lost that game that was the day they were eliminated but they were so impressive and uh, I was like man this this is really exciting because uh, their skill level uh, individually and team wise has really uh, gone through the roof and say the last 10 years and it's just I think from a guy that comes from a hockey background, it's really exciting to know that the world loves our game and we have to be patient with it. And I'll give you another bit of an example. It's kind of like when uh, people maybe in Canada more so were, you know, why are we going to the States to have NHL games? Why are we putting three teams in California? And I played 10 years in California and I heard those sorts of things. And I'm thinking, you're not getting the big picture here. This is really good for the game of hockey. And it's really good that hockey got a, uh, a foothold in California because now look at it. Like it's, it's a huge sport there. And I can tell you, uh, California is now considered a hockey hotbed. And a lot of the junior leagues here in, in Canada get a lot of their kids from California. The same thing is happening in Texas. And now from what I understand, talking to people, Tennessee's maybe going to be the next big one because the people in Tennessee love the Predators and they fall in love with our game. There are no hockey uh, 
high school programs in Tennessee before the Predators came. Now I heard it's littered with hockey and, and uh, amateur teams and so on. The same thing. Now, St. Louis is a little bit different because they've had a long and rich hockey history and a lot of their alumni have chosen to stay there and they they're really huge into developing their programs but st louis is developing a lot of really good hockey players now and i like to think that this tournament's like a showcase right like and you said we build the game obviously gretzky getting traded to the kings had a major impact on the nhl's development on the west coast and so without those type of things from happening the game doesn't grow you cannot expand and have more people being able to pick up a sport. Yes, it's an expensive sport to play for the long term. Yeah, but, but everybody can get a bucket and get some skates and go play some shinny. Maybe not during COVID, but on a regular year, you can go to your local establishment, you know, throw a puck on the ice, find 10 guys you want to shoot around together, and you yeah. got yourself a game. Four hours later, you're icing your feet because you were on there yep. too long outside. But uh-huh. those are the but those are the best memories that you can have. And so when we look at tournaments like this and showcases, you know, Canada had 20 first round picks on their team. Sounds ridiculous, but I mean, that just goes to show you the, the level in which Canada is pumping out these athletes. Now you had an opportunity, not once, but twice to coach the top prospects game back in 2019 and 2002. Yeah. What was it? What was it like being around the young talent and co- is coaching something ever you'd like to maybe pursue a little bit more? I'll answer the uh, second question first. Um, you know, I think for every guy that has ever played in the national hockey league, there's something about coaching that is intriguing. There's no question about it, but uh, just the coaching life wasn't really for me. And I, I know what people are going to say. That's the most ridiculous thing in the world because I was going to say, cause you move so often. It's not often that you stay in one city for a great length of time, but you know, I travel my entire life, right? I'm on the road all the time, whether I'm with the Flames or with Hockey Night in Canada. So that almost doesn't make any sense. But to answer your first question, it was invigorating to be around all those guys, uh, the two times that I've been a part of it. And uh, I remember my first uh, go around was in Saskatoon and uh, Rick Nash was on my team and uh, he went on to have a brilliant NHL career. And I remember he was going to try a move in the shootout and uh, he was a little skeptical. Now players do it all the time where the stick goes between the legs and, you know, they roof it. And uh, before he tried it, he comes over to me on the bench and he whispers in my ear, hey, Kelly, do you think people think I'm a hot dog or a show off if I try it? And I go, no, try it. Like, you know, but I thought just how respectful he was. He just didn't want to do something that would put shine a light on him for the wrong reasons. And then uh, two years ago, I had Kirby Doc on my team. And uh, that was really cool, amongst other really great players. But uh, I just thought that it was a really great experience because, you know, people like to, when you get older, you like to say kids aren't the same anymore and they change. And I say garbage to all that. Kids are, you know, if you're a good kid, you're a good kid. It doesn't matter if you're born in the 30s or if you're born in 2005. You know, I just think that that notion doesn't carry any weight to me. Uh, I think we've raised three incredible daughters that have three incredible partners. And so uh, I look at kids today and they have the same work ethic. They're, you know, just good, solid kids. And, and that's what I like to see when I was around those uh, special kids. uh, What was that? About a year ago or two years ago. I can't remember when I did the uh, two years ago now, two years ago. Yeah. 
two years ago with Ron McLean. And uh, I was just like, you know, these kids are just really nice people. Now, I, I may have to ask you for some personal advice in about, you know, a couple of days. I have two young daughters and we're about to find out if our what are what we're having for our third child tomorrow, actually. Oh, congrats. So, Holy. Thank thank you. So if we end up having the third daughter, I might have to ask you how you survived, you know, the, <laughs> the teenage years. I'm far away from it now, but I'm a little bit concerned considering how I see my young daughter at not even four putting on full makeup and talking about <laughs> boyfriends. So I'm in a little bit of trouble, Kelly. Oh uh, yeah. An open mind, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, You'll learn so much. I, I came from a family, a uh, wonderful mom and dad. And uh, I had an older brother, but I wasn't around a lot of girls or women. Right. So, uh, and then going into the hockey industry, um, you know, you're only surrounded basically around guys. So it was a really great experience for me to really um, learn how to interact properly with women and, and uh, understand, uh, you know, that, you know, we are different in some respects and we think a little bit differently at times. And, you know, so it was really great for me to see uh, the world from a different perspective. Um, the one thing I will you know, jokingly kind of way say, you don't have to worry about the teenage years as much as your wife, because it seems like <laughs> girls, and mothers fight a little bit in those teenage years. And then the good thing I always tell people, when the daughters start to come back around 15, 16, 17, they are just tight with their mom after that. So then you're all good. Once you get through those two, three years of the awkwardness, then you're all good. Perfect. All right. I will, I will put that in the back of the mind to remember at that time. Now, speaking of being a young kid, obviously, you know, you're from Edmonton. You're playing street hockey with your buddies. Yeah. How did how did the observation from a friend's dad lead yeah. you to becoming a goalie? Wow, you've done your research, my friend. I like <laughs> it. So uh, it was the summer of uh, when I was turning 12. And so I guess 73. And uh, I was going to start to play ice hockey with my friends because I, I was playing street hockey and road hockey and all that. But I'd never been on an organized team. And uh, finally, that summer, when my mom and dad said, yeah, you can play, my buddy and I, Jeff Marshall, we're just playing ball hockey in his driveway, and we we're having that discussion. And uh, I, I was undecided. I didn't know what position I wanted to play. And then Mr. Marshall said something to me like, you know, Kelly, I don't want to influence you too greatly, but whenever I watch all you guys play ball hockey, when you're in the net, you stop the ball, the ball way more often than everybody else. It was that simple, Julian. I was like, Hmm. Interesting. And so I thought, okay, I'll give it a whirl. And then I fell in love with it the first day I ever uh, practiced. And even though I was lousy because I was 12 years old and all the kids had already played for a few years, that didn't discourage me. Uh, that came later, but that at that point, that uh, wasn't a problem. I just fell in love with the position because it's so unique and every day is different. Every day is a new challenge. And uh, so I, I really enjoyed that aspect of, of it. Mental toughness is huge, especially growing up yeah. as, as a teenager and to start something at and what would be considered a much older age than the norm yeah. for you to, you know, start such so late and still have a fantastic professional career is something really to to be proud of because we see hockey players now putting their kids on skates at one, maybe eighteen months. Like as soon as they can walk, they're on a pair of skates. And so you know, at 12 years old, I can only imagine, you know, the pressure of not only just playing hockey, but also being 
the mental guy who straps on pads and lets people fire pucks at them from close distances. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a two part answer there again. Uh, the mental toughness. I had no idea I was learning that skill when I was playing hockey at a young age. Right. I just, I just thought I was trying to play goal and stop pucks at 12, you know, 15, 16 years old. I had no idea for those five years or so that I was building some sort of mental toughness. That, that was a, uh, an accident really. But the, the skating part, I must admit, my mom and dad had a skating uh, rink in our backyard. So as a young kid, I believe I was about three or four when I started skating. Now I wasn't a very good skater and I quit for a couple of years. And that's why when I was 11, when I went to my mom and dad to ask if I could play organized hockey, they said no, because you had to learn how to skate again for a year. Right. So the entire year when I was 11 and 12, then I learned how to properly skate at least decent and uh but i wrestle with that too listen we have uh, a grandson he's going to be three here in about a month wow. and now covid's different and with the lockdown because we can't we can't see him right so we can't right. I, I but i would have wrestled with the fact that at what age do i start to take my grandson skating again because i'd like to do that and my wife and i have talked about it so I, I don't know what this whole thing is going to look like here. And I don't know if in the next couple months, uh, if we're going to have a chance to do some outdoor skating somewhere, but certainly next year um, that will be top of uh, our agenda, at least mine and uh, try and teach our little Maverick how to skate. And then in a couple, three more years, cause he's going to be a, a, a brother to a, another grandson. So we'll have that opportunity again in a couple, three, four years. Congratulations. That's always an exciting time. I'm sure. Beautiful. We love it. Now, you play your, your hockey, you play for Medicine Hat, then you end up getting drafted in 1980 by the New York Islanders. Yeah. You played for two other teams, as we talked about on the West Coast, in the LA Kings and the San Jose Sharks. Now, you obviously have great memories of each of those three stops yeah. for many different reasons, right? Yeah. From a fan's perspective, the obvious ones that stand out to me being a fan of yours is obviously you got to start with the 87 uh, sure. Easter epic, yeah. uh, the 92-93 cup finals, which I'm going to come back and talk to you because as a Maple Leafs fan, I have certain feelings about your Stanley <laughs> Cup run. And then well, obviously or a Blue Jays hat, not a Leafs hat. <laughs> well, I don't have a Blue Jays hat, but I figure this would represent close <laughs> enough. Um, and so, and the other one with, you know, signing with the San Jose Sharks, which at that time I think was still an early, you know, four five, six years into their NHL expansion. Now going back to that quadruple overtime game with the New York Islanders in 1987 in the Stanley cups against the capitals, you know, you had 73 saves, which was an NHL record that stood for 33 years yeah. until this past summer, Columbus blue jackets, goalie Jonas Corposalo recorded 85 saves in a playoff game. You know, what's going through your mind as you're enduring seven periods of hockey? Well, when you enter a game like that, you have no idea, you know, how it's going to end and how odd that ending was. So I remember going into the game and uh, we were down in that series three, one, uh, we ended up tying it up three, three, going to land over Washington to play the capitals for game seven and uh, odds weren't in our favor. Um, we had three incredible hockey players out of our lineup because of uh, injuries. So we were without Mike Bossy, without Dennis Potvin, and without Brent Sutter. 
And then Brian Trache, another one of our legendary Hall of Fame players, he was playing the game with a separated left shoulder. So for us to even be in that situation was pretty remarkable. But as the game's going on, and uh, now it's, you know, second overtime, uh, I had been in a double overtime game before, and you really start to feel the effects at that point. I, you know, one overtime is taxing enough, but definitely once you get into – uh, two, three, four overtimes. It's so difficult mentally and physically. And I remember trying to focus. And after an intermission, this is when it really occurred to me that it's going to be the first two minutes of a period or the last two minutes, simply because the first two minutes, you're not quite focused yet. And the last two minutes, you're probably losing a little bit of focus. Now, analytics, uh, Chris Snow, that works for the Calgary Flames, he said, he sent me a text a few years ago. Statistically, it's actually been proven through analytics that it's the first three minutes and last three minutes. So I was off by a minute, but either way, it doesn't matter. But during that game, Andy Van Hellman was the referee. He was a legendary guy, and I really had a really great rapport with him. I was happy to see he and about five other guys, uh, you know, referees that I really admired that I thought perfect for this environment. And as the game's going on, and I can't remember if it was late in the uh, third overtime, but I know certainly in the uh, fourth overtime period, Julian, that flash on the scoreboard, something like, now this is now the seventh longest game in NHL history. This is now the sixth or whatever the numbers were. Uh, and Or this was the longest uh, overtime game in 60 years, something like that. All these in interesting little tidbits. And I remember there'd be a whistle in my end and, We'd look up at the scoreboard. There'd be Andy Van Helleman standing beside me, and we'd look up and then kind of look at each other and chuckle. <laughs> you know, as the game wore on, surprisingly, you became more relaxed because, in a sense, I hate to say this, but you know, once you're in quadruple or triple overtime, I don't think anybody's going to get blamed for the loss. You know, the game's just going to end, and you know, you, you hate to see a loser, but somebody's going to be a hero, and uh, so it really took a lot of pressure off. Uh, as the game went on. This is H. And this is Snaps. And this is your boy Chaps. When you're done with the big old podcast, why don't you go to the fridge, grab one of those nice cold beers, sit down in your favorite chair, kick up your feet, and download the Dad Pops podcast. The podcast where dads are being guys, guys are being dudes, and dudes are being dads. Now, obviously, being from Edmonton, I'm sure it was always an experience when you got to play against your hometown team when you were with, you know, either the Islanders or, or the Kings. And so, unfortunately, when you came up against Edmonton in the playoffs with the Kings, they seemed yep. to have your number yep. year after year. However, in the year you don't have to play Edmonton in, in, the, play, in the playoffs, yeah. you get to play Toronto in the conference finals going to yet another Game 7. But before we get into Game 7, let's go back to Game 6. Game 6 with the famous non-call high stick, Wayne Gretzky clips Doug Gilmore and somehow, someway, Kerry Frazier, the one time he's not paying attention in a hockey game he's refereeing, somehow misses this call. Now, obviously we don't have replay back then we don't have all these different angles yeah and so you can't really fault him for doing so but i will say 
as a Toronto fan growing up, I may not have understood what I was seeing. I was only five at the time, but I was told and it was made clear that we did not like Wayne Gretzky because he clipped (laughs) our captain and cost us. I think it was the last time we had made it that far and that close to the Stanley cup finals. I think the next year you guys, next year you guys went to the conference finals as well against Vancouver. Yeah, but we we I don't think we make it to seven. I don't think we came as close because we were. I believe Toronto was in a good position to move forward, lose game six, obviously lose game seven. You yeah. go up against the Montreal Canadiens. What is that like going to your going to a Stanley Cup final and competing with the chance to bring home the ultimate prize? Okay, so I want to go back to your comment about Edmonton. Um, I always found it nerve wracking, Julian, to go back to my hometown to play. Uh, I. I didn't have much of a problem playing Edmonton, whether I was on Long Island in LA or in San Jose, but my gosh, I was so nervous always going back to Edmonton in my hometown because I didn't want to embarrass my family. You know, my family, you know, I'd get tickets for them and stuff. And it's, it's surprising. It's the oddest thing. So when you're a kid growing up and your mom and dad take you to the rink, uh, for your minor hockey league games, I had no nervousness for that. Like I, I wasn't afraid of embarrassing my mom and dad, but all of a sudden I get to the NHL and I put all this pressure on myself that I, I don't want to make a fool of them. And so, uh, man, you put a lot of pressure on yourself. And, uh, but then going fast forward to what you're talking about, uh, 93 playoffs, you know, I always say this and I'm not covering up for Kerry Fraser or the two linesmen, but, uh, I was, what 190 feet or 185 feet away from that play and I didn't see it and I know you know there's different bodies and so on maybe in my way but and oftentimes you can kind of tell if somebody gets clipped by a high stick and and I didn't really notice that at the time also so uh but here's what I'm I really want to get at uh yeah we got a break but that happens you know I lost some games myself by getting a bad break and right. you got to get over it. And the Leafs had a chance. They had a chance to put their foot on our throat in game seven and make Leaf gardens. And they didn't. So, you know, in fairness, Wayne Gretzky, he says it's the best game he ever played. And, and it, I would say it's right up there. I, I saw some other pretty good games that he played too, so, but I think he means in the moment, I can't speak for him, but, uh, and then, yeah, to go to Montreal and, you know, those two buildings uh, for me growing up in Edmonton, uh, I always watched on a hockey night in Canada, the games coming from Toronto Maple Leaf Gardens or the Montreal Forum. And those, those as a young kid, they never left me. And so even when I played a, a, a regular season game in either Maple Leaf Gardens or the Forum, it was a special deal. It was a big, big deal and including playing game seven versus the Leafs and Maple Leaf Gardens, you can't top that on a Saturday night. And we knew how unique and special that was. And, and, and uh, trust me, that was, uh, that, that helps motivate you. Um, but then we beat Toronto, we go to Montreal. And once again, I just knew the importance of that building in my mind and what it had meant to me as a kid growing up. And so we go out for warm up before game one, come back in quite nervous. Uh, they're a nervous energy anticipation, but not, not scared, just a, a good place to be. And I always remembered walking out towards the ice and leading the team out. And I stopped just before 
I was going to put my skates on the ice and Julie and I looked around and I looked around the Montreal Forum because I wanted to experience it all. I wanted to have that feeling I had as a kid. Like, you know, you always dream about playing uh, in the Stanley Cup finals, whether it's in Toronto or Montreal. And, and we had that uh, good luxury. I also remember, and I want to make this uh, also, it was also important for me always to get a glimpse of Jean Beliveau because he was always in that building. And he and his wife sat in those same two seats. And it, he just seemed like hockey royalty royalty to me and looked so regal, beautiful, handsome man and his hair. And he had the wonderful suits. And I always, every time I went to Montreal and played in the forum, I always looked for uh, Jean Beliveau. It's cool. Yeah. I mean, there's something about the playing the Canadian teams, Toronto, Montreal, and it sort of segues to the last thing I want to talk to you about and yeah. the North division. So this year, the NHL, uh, due to COVID restrictions and travel, have decided to put together all the Canadian teams to come up with the North Division. Yeah. So we're going to play games, Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver, yeah. Edmonton, all these teams that we play maybe once a year, but it could become yeah. a little bit more regular this year. What are your thoughts on this all-Canadian division? And do you think that this increases the chances that a Canadian team can bring home a Stanley Cup? Well, first of all, I think that uh, the Canadian teams are at that level. Like right now, uh, I look at most of the teams and uh, I, I say, wow, we've got some really good competitive teams right now. And, and I look at the work that general managers did for the most part across the board uh, in this North Division. And most of the teams have done an unbelievable job of adding uh, important players to their lineup. So it's going to be phenomenal. I, I'm really looking forward to it. And uh if I'm not mistaken, I should know this, but I think they play each other nine or 10 times, right? Yes. And so that's going to be great. Um, and just the competition uh, and the rivalries that we're going to all experience as fans of the game, I think it's just going to be great. Uh, it's going to be so fun for all of us. It's going to be appointment to viewing. You know, I, sure. I think people will actually mark it on their calendar. Uh, you know, maybe I'm dating myself. Maybe people do that on their smartphone or tablet now. <laughs> I still do actually carry a calendar in my travel bag, but that's separate. But I, I just think it's going to be incredible. And, I, you know, I look at some of the schedules, and I haven't looked maybe close enough yet, but I see some of the teams, they're playing uh, a particular team like three times in a row. Yeah. So it's going to be, you know, I, I, I know people might be offended by this word, but I'm going to like it because there's going to be a little bit of hatred in those games. And sure. the hatred has really disappeared and in a lot of sports and in particular our game. And so for that reason, you know, now that you're going to have those rivalries and uh, all Canadian teams, I think it's going to just going to be great, great hockey. I think it's going to be exciting. I think it's going to be great for, especially for young fans who grow up loving Connor McDavid, but maybe live on the East coast and they don't get to see him as much because they can't stay up to watch the, you yep. know, the 10 30 games on hockey yep. in Canada. So I think, you're going to see a little bit more of that. I think you're going to see the love of the game truly build. And Canada, for the longest time, has been saying, you know, this is our game. You know, what would yep. happen if we were just to play within Canada? And we're about to see it. We're about to yep. see how it how it works, how it's marketed, what the fans are going to be like. I think Toronto, Montreal, I mean, Ottawa, those rivalries are great. But now we get to see, you know, Vancouver and Calgary and yeah. Edmonton and, and really build on – 
who can really say at the end of this year the best team in Canada is you're going to have those bragging rights because you're going to play everybody and you're going to have to duke it out and dogfight between all of those Canadian teams. You know, I like it too, just from a, a selfish standpoint for me personal that, you know, I think we're going to have more eyes than ever on our broadcasts. And so I'm kind of looking forward to that challenge, right? Because, uh, you know, people, uh, they are uh, fans are – uh, really crazy about their team and they don't mind <laughs> letting you know it and they express it uh, on social media and stuff. So I think it's just going to be great that, uh, you know, a lot of people are going to be watching and they're going to be, uh, you know, critiquing the games on the ice and they're going to be wondering about what the broadcasters are going to say about their team, even though uh, they might be cheering for uh, somebody else or however it works. It's just going to be really cool. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's exciting. It's one of the again positives that came out of this COVID nineteen situation. A lot of things we can look back and say were challenging, but I think it's even better when you can look back and take in all the positives that have happened yeah. and taken place and say, you know what, this is we might get it for one year only, but hell, it's going to be a fun year, and we're going to watch and we're going to get our popcorn ready and enjoy and hopefully don't have a Stanley cup that ends sometime in August, because that was the only thing that felt a little weird. Um, but hopefully, you know, we'll get back on track and, and get to enjoy the game. Like we once yeah. did before all this craziness. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all kind of expect that, you know, first of all, the NHL and Gary Bettman and uh, Bill Daly and the NHL players association did an incredible job handing out Stanley cup to Tampa. Like, how they got through that bubble and everything in the two months, phenomenal. And so when uh, the commissioner said that, uh, okay, we're going to start here in January, I think all of us were like, okay, you know, and now we, he can pull it off. He just does. Right. And yeah. it sounds like he's pretty adamant that the, uh, the following season will start uh, as it normally would training camps in September and back uh, in October, uh, regular season games. So I hope in, at some point we're going to be back to normalcy. And uh, But, I, you know, going back to it, I, I just sense, you know, we've been on some conference calls with some of the uh, managers and, and some of the players. I get a sense here for the Canadian teams that the players are really excited about this chance to play exclusively other Canadian teams. And I, and I think that's going to be really cool for us. Yeah, I think it'll be a great experience. I'm definitely looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to being able to hear you on the call a little bit more than I would have normally because 10.30 is a little bit past my bedtime to oh, watch the okay, Calgary right. Flames games. Right. But we're going to see you against Toronto. We're going to get to hear you on the alternate broadcast, which is going to be fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but Kelly, listen, I want to say thank you to you for your time today, for you, uh, you know, just – talking it up with me it was it was a lot of fun great to find out that you live so close to to our old family <laughs> friends um i'll have to you know reach out and say hey listen I, I i know your neighbor now you know i had a chat with him the other night on zoom but um where can people find you on social media okay i'm on uh, twitter at uh, just kelly rudy and uh on uh, instagram kelly underscore rudy and please, if you uh, want to tag me uh, something, mention me, uh, tag me in it. And uh, if you want to have a mental health conversation or support something like that, uh, uh, please feel free. Because like I said earlier, 
Um, if you're going through something, don't feel alone. And and this is an important conversation for all of us to have. And by the way, if you do want to follow me on uh, social media, expect in, in all likelihood, other than our conversations with mental health, you won't find anything important. You'll just see what I'm having for dinner. You might see my wife and I golfing in the summer. And in all likelihood, you're going to see a ton of pictures of our little grandson, Maverick, and our new grandson uh, here in February. Listen, congratulations again on the uh, upcoming grandson. That is fantastic. Uh, for my guest, Kelly Rudy, I'm your host, Julian Ortiz. Don't forget to click and like and the like button and subscribe. A new episode of the Big O Podcast is available every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for watching and listening, everyone. See you next time. Thank you.